welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveler. My name is Divya Sani, Global Editorial Director of Condé Nast Traveler, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey. And at Condé Nast Traveler, we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favorite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners, or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Jonathan Bastable. Welcome to Condé Nast Traveller's Escape Routes. I'll be reading my piece on St. Petersburg, which featured in the March 2018 issue of Condé Nast Traveller. I hope you enjoy it. St. Petersburg's Yelisea Food Hall is a great building in a city of wonderful architecture. The exterior, with its enormous stained glass frontage, is a madcap piece of pre-revolutionary Art Nouveau. But the really surreal sights are on the inside. All around this marvellous shop there are étagères, five-foot-tall ziggurats stacked with sweetmeats. Halva and marzipan and walnuts pickled in syrup, a perennial Russian favourite. You can buy a bust of Lenin made from three kilos of white chocolate and matryoshka dolls filled with drager, oiled sweets in modern Russian parlance, but also the sugar plums of Tchaikovsky's Dancing Fairy. The glass-topped patisserie cabinets are full of eclairs piped with calligraphic inscriptions. Snorvin Gordon, Happy New Year. Elsewhere, there are rounds of rye bread like edible boulders, cheeses flavoured with pungent herbs, Thick orange sides of smoked salmon like the lolling tongues of dragons. A ghostly pianola plays itself, cranking out ragtime tunes, and the whole place is suffused in rainbow lights from those coloured windows. Go at dusk for afternoon tea. It's an experience you will never forget. Some people like Petersburg best during the white nights, the midsummer weeks when the sun barely sets but I prefer the city in its winter garb. The January cold can be thrilling. The moisture freezes out of the air and the atmosphere becomes as fresh as chopped dill and as crisp as a ginger biscuit. If it gets really cold, below minus 15 or so, the broad river Neva freezes over. This happens slowly over a matter of days and it is fascinating to watch. First, you see lacy fingers of ice at the embankments then come sheet-like flows that move to and fro with the tide, crunching and crashing and coalescing into ever bigger static platforms. A snowfall at this point will close the width of the river in white ermine. Sometimes thin mists roll in from the Finnish Gulf, diffusing the one northern light and making the columned cathedrals and the pastel palaces appear as translucent and weightless as party balloons. At times like these, you feel that St. Petersburg is not a solid city at all, but an architect's delirious hallucination of one.
For most of the century following the cataclysmic revolution of 1917, this was a Cinderella city, eclipsed by its ugly sister Moscow. But Petersburg has emerged from its own past as the capital of a troubled empire, as Petrograd the cradle of Bolshevism, as Leningrad a victim of wartime devastation and post-war neglect. At some point in the past decade, Petersburg has acquired the clean, cool vibe that you would expect of a bright, forward-looking Scandi town, which is more or less what Peter the Great had in mind when he planted the city here more than 200 years ago and modestly named it after himself. The best way to get a sense of the place is to climb up to the outdoor balustrade under the Golden Dome of St Isaac's Cathedral. Choose a clear day and wrap up because the wind bites like a dog. To the north, over the shoulders of the green saints and angels on the cathedral rooftop, is the gleaming stiletto spire of the Admiralty and the stout Petropavlovsky fortress. To the east is the Winter Palace, painted the blue-green colour of sea ice, as if its halls and chambers were hewn from a glacier. To the south, the winding Moika Canal and the very splendid Astoria Hotel. To the west, the rotunda of the Marinsky Theatre and the cheery new design quarter of New Holland. And in every direction, a smattering of golden domes like costly trinkets spilled from a lacquer box. From up here you see the city for what it really is, one enormous work of art. And art is everywhere here in Peter's chef-d'oeuvre. A great deal of it is in the Hermitage, of course. With its miles of corridor and thousands upon thousands of exhibits, this is a museum you could visit every day for a month without properly covering the ground. So choose your targets well. The gold and the diamond rooms, the Leonardos and the Raphaels, and zip by the rest. Or go for the smaller Russian museum, which provides a real insight into the culture of this vast and complex country. Ilya Ryepin's epic scenes of Cossacks and barge haulers, for example, are the canvas equivalents of Tolstoy's crowded novels. And in fact, Tolstoy is one of the many great writers that Repin painted. Tolstoy chose to pose barefoot and clothed in a loose peasant smock to proclaim his own rooted Russianness. For a different view again, dive into the metro, where the older stations constructed in the 1950s are packed with Soviet civic art. On the platform at Narvskaya, you will find sculptures of grim-faced sailors and happy schoolchildren, all of them looking forward to the triumph of communism. At Pushkinskaya, a statue of Alexander Pushkin, the founder of Russian literature, sits in reverie like a frock-coated version of Rodin's thinker. And there is an impressive mural of Peter the Great at Admiraltyeskaya, the deepest station in this deepest of underground systems. The downward escalator is dizzyingly steep, and the descent lasts so long that you can't help feeling you should have done something constructive with the time, like maybe writing a short novel. But do spend the brief daylight hours outdoors, exploring the waterways and bridges and palaces. Some of Petersburg's best sites are on the canals. There is the Yusupov Palace, where Rasputin was fed chocolate cakes laced with cyanide, the gaudy church of the Saviour on the Blood, built on the spot where Alexander II, the Tsar Liberator, was fatally wounded by an assassin's bomb, and the Fabergé Museum on the Fontanka, 
a brilliant place to duck into when the cold begins to seep into your bones. The museum is not just about the famous Easter eggs, though there's an eye-popping roomful of these. It also displays the bread and butter output of the House of Fabergé and other Russian jewellers. The dinner services, icon covers, punch bowls and objets de fantaisie. Several rooms are devoted to the pleasing paraphernalia of nicotine addiction. Cigarette cases made of jade and gold, samovar-shaped lighters, ashtrays in the form of the four suits in a pack of cards, snuff boxes, tobacco jars, cigar cutters. There's a silver match holder in the shape of a terrier's head, a thing of staggering opulence and ugliness. All these things constitute the obvious answer to the perennial question, what do you give a Grand Duke who has everything? And if yet another cigarette case seemed superfluous, there was always the matching malachite desk set, desk barometer, desk compass, desk clock, desk bell push, desk bonbonniere. Just across the Fontanka from the Fabergé Museum stands the Sheremetyev Palace, which was once the residence of one of Russia's oldest and wealthiest families. Tucked away behind it is a service block that was divided into communal flats after the revolution. Here lived Anna Akhmatova. Most English speakers will not have heard of her, but she was the greatest Russian poet of the troubled 20th century. Her husband, also a fine poet, was shot as a counter-revolutionary. Her son was dispatched to the Gulag. She was denounced in the newspapers, shamefully, as half-nun, half-whore. She remained dignified throughout and wrote some of the most magnificent poetry of the age about her own lost past, about the torment that Russia lived through in her lifetime, about the indestructibility of the human spirit. Her flat is now a museum and to go there is a humbling experience. You need not know a word of her poetry to be moved by it. In one lyric, she wrote about dark nights spent patrolling the inner courtyard with, she said, a lantern and a bale of keys. And sure enough, a lantern stands just inside the door. Her beret hangs on a peg with her thin Macintosh, totally inadequate for the Leningrad climate. These rooms were shared with her second husband, her husband's ex-wife and various other transient residents throughout the years. If nothing else, the space gives a good idea of what communal living was like in the middle Soviet years. Cramped, sparse, lacking in privacy. And Akhmatova was under constant surveillance. A secret policeman was stationed in the yard and she had to show herself each morning at her window so that he could report that she had not committed suicide in the night. Her greatest fear was that her manuscripts would be confiscated and her work lost forever. So she wrote her poems on scraps of paper and had trusted friends memorise them in her presence. Once her visitors had the lines off by heart, she would immediately burn the paper in a little metal ashtray that was permanently on her desk. It's still there and is surely the most poignant ashtray in the history of literature, more precious in its way than all the gold and silver exemplars back in the Fabergé Museum. While Petersburg is a city of art and poetry, it is perhaps a city of music above all. 
Tchaikovsky lived and died here, and his grave, surmounted by weeping angels, can be seen in the Alexander Nevsky Monastery. But his real monument is Swan Lake, a ballet that seems to be permanently in performance at one venue or another, as if Petersburg would not be Petersburg unless somewhere in town a swan were expiring gracefully on stage. The best way to get tickets is to go directly to the box office and snap up what's available. My seat in the gods at the Alexandrinsky, a venerable old theatre founded by Catherine the Great, cost less than £10. The corps de ballet, playing peasant folk in the first act, wore costumes that were buttery yellow or icing pink or peppermint green, all the edible colours of the city's architecture. It wasn't a lavish production, the stage is quite small, but the atmosphere was wonderful because Russian audiences so adore this work and this art form. For a different kind of Russian harmony, go to Evensong. One of the best choirs in the city can be heard at the Preobrazhensky Cathedral on the edge of the historic centre. As you make your way there, through the frosted summer garden, you might hear the chiming of bells as clean and metallic as a silver rouble. Inside, Orthodox churches are always dark and warm, and the choreography of worship is mesmerising. The candlelit icons, the comings and goings of the chanting priests, the swinging thuribles of pungent incense, all played out to the accompaniment of the heart-searing Slavonic liturgy. Gospody pamilui, gospody pamilui, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Stay for as long or short a time as you wish. There's no rule against leaving as soon as your feet begin to ache or your heart is too full to take any more of this ancient magic. But savour the night walk home, because you'll never be closer to knowing what it means to have a Russian soul. We hope you enjoyed our Escapes Truth podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us on the charts and ensure that you're the first to hear about our new episodes.